You don't have to be a rocket scientist to connect the dots here and see where this is going. They are going to intrude in families. It's going to get much worse. It has already started. Unless and until people put their foot down, it's going to get really, really ugly. When you first research this issue, the only things that come up are affirm your child. This is a really significant issue that your child has now fallen into. This is evil. This is absolute evil that is coming at our kids. And if our faith community is not going to stand between that evil and our children, I don't know what hope we have. There's absolutely no way that we could have gotten from 2015 to 2018 where we had transgender everywhere, okay? It took them almost 15 years to get gay marriage. Well, it took them three to five years to get this transgender stuff. When you stand by and do nothing, then you are essentially saying, I'm okay with the human carnage and the human suffering that is coming from this transgender, gender ideological agenda. This is something that is affecting families in possibly every congregation in America. The way that the devil and his forces lose this is by speaking truth. God will not hold us guiltless for our cowardice, and that's what it is. It's cowardice in the pulpit. It's cowardice in our churches. It's cowardice from Christians in government. Do what you're doing for the generations to come. Do your job. Get your tickets at dysphoriamovie.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. You're listening to Fearless with Mark and Amber, a behind-the-scenes of our filmmaking ministry, Fearless Features, where we are creating documentary films about the issues impacting our culture and society from a biblical perspective and pursuing truth above all else. I'm Amber Archer, and joining me is my husband, author, director, speaker, Mark Archer. Pumpkin Spice Latte! (laughs) If you find this podcast helpful, be sure to subscribe and share the show to help us reach more people. You can learn more about us and the movies we're making by visiting fearlessfeatures.org. Yay! This week is the week. It's the big week. It's the big week. I'm excited. I cannot wait. Because what's coming up? Red carpet premiere yes. of Dysphoria. How many days is it? Let's Three see. days. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh-huh. In Noblesville, so, Indiana. Noblesville, Indiana. Life Church. Come on down to the red carpet premiere. Life Church. <laughs> Noblesville, Indiana. You can still get tickets. That's right. Dysphoriamovie.com. That's right. You Link in the show Join us. Totes, join us. It'll be a good time. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Good time, uh, full of information. Oh yeah, information overload, guaranteed. Uh-huh. And so, in in talking about that, yes. Then we were talking about playing a portion of the film for y'all. I cannot wait. And I asked him. I said, "Can we just play the open? Can we just play the open sequence, please?" <laughs> we can. Me, I like to give things away, right? <laughs> Come on down. Everybody's invited. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the open sequence. All right. You ready? So so this is what you're getting as soon as the movie starts. All right. So here here we go. Well, and this is scripture. This is Ephesians 511. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them.
therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. comes from scripture the mm-hmm. ultimate authority the word of god right and <clears throat> you know it's kind of like don't shoot the messenger <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you so yes i'm excited so join us there's lots of it's it's information packed educational informational <laughs> i confess that there are two passages of scripture in this film that i have always wanted to put into a film uh, what the open sequence okay is Romans 1, what is it, 24 to... 24 to 28. 24 to 28A, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the end of the film, we talk about the church at Laodicea. Yes. And <clears throat> I'm not going to give too much no, more that's away. Just wait, just wait. I've always wanted to read those two into a film. Yeah. And, and there you have it. The yeah. Lord answered your prayers. So you should come. <laughs> To, Get all to, the see above. The, to see the, the pictures that go with the talkie. Well, well, right. And the the chants there at the beginning, we're here, we're queer, we're coming from your children. We've talked about it before on this podcast, but that happened in New York City mm-hmm. at the Gay Pride uh, Parade yeah. in this year, June 2023. It was June. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so what do we got going on today? Well, I have, uh, so we have a um, another uh, cast member today that we want to introduce you to <clears throat> she's an unseen cast member right so um every once in a while you shoot more than you can use <laughs> yes it doesn't happen often but uh it happened with this one and so this is one of the interviews that did not make it into the film well and and reason being mm-hmm. And we've talked about making documentary films before. You, you, it's not that you don't know what the story is going into it, but when you're researching and you're interviewing all of these people, the, the movie takes on a life of its own. Yeah. And it becomes its own, um, what what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it's an organic process. It, it really is. And yeah. so this just naturally, you know, it wasn't something like, oh, no, it doesn't fit. It would just be too long. Well, this is the, the, the big difference is what people need to understand is that there are there's two different 
major mindsets to making documentary films, right? It, one is the scripted approach, and the other is how we do it, which mm -hmm. is we do not script. We do not give people a list of questions. <laughs> which drives people nuts. I don't know why. <laughs> well, because everybody's used to, you know, well, give me the questions so I can prepare my answers. And what the problem we found with doing that is that it's not natural. It's not natural. You you get very canned replies. Mm -hmm. um, because here's the thing. When we interview people, we've already done the research on them. Right. I already know what your expertise is in. Yeah. There's a reason why I'm talking to you. Right. I'm not going to, we're not going to come in and play gotcha. We're not going to oh, ask no. them about something that's going to make them, that, that'll put them out of place, you know, or make them feel uncomfortable. We're not, we don't try to make people look bad. We interview people because we, we value their opinion mm -hmm. on something. Most, I would say most of what you see on um, television, mm -hmm. National Geographic, Netflix, Oh, totally scripted. They're all scripted. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, the most blatant examples of it are what what used to be called reality TV. You know, like Survivor, for example. Yeah. Stuff like, this stuff is all scripted. Well, they listen. have a team of screenwriters that writes this stuff. And I was just going to say, and, and let's dissect this just for a moment. I know this is, we're getting into the nitty gritty details of filmmaking mm -hmm. slightly. That's what we do. But, but. You have to script something out in order to get the funding for the projects. Right. Otherwise, how do people know what they're funding? Which is why we stay independent mm -hmm. because we already have had people trying to get us to change the direction of this film. Right. Uh, I'm sorry. The Lord has called us to this ministry for this reason. I cannot change the word of God. To make you comfortable. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys missed last week's episode, I'll leave a link to it again in the show notes. So many kind souls in the universe. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Hey, baby. <laughs> what are you doing? Moving on. <clears throat> You're so fired. Okay. So, yeah. So when we do these films, we we get this is why it takes a while. Yeah. Because in the case of Dysphoria, uh, we added Aaron Lee, who you've heard from now mm -hmm. on this film or on this podcast. We added her in as uh, gosh, we interviewed her in June of this year of this year. <laughs> So we actually had a cut of the film done, yeah. and then we talked to Aaron and went, "Oh, this has to go on the film." Yeah, and so and back to the drawing board. We go back, and and stuff starts. So you have to start making room mm -hmm. to develop another storyline. So all that to explain why we have a couple of interviews that we'll share with you that are really good interviews, mm -hmm. but they had to ultimately get pushed out because you, what happens is you have. You have major storylines, you know, people that you've interviewed, and you you have to devote a certain amount of screen time to let them tell their story. Right. And then you've got minor or supporting characters who have something to add, but it's the film isn't really about them. Mm -hmm. And so you you have to have both to make it work. Um, and in this case, who we're going to share with you today is was one of the supporting characters. That's not to diminish what she had to say, because she has a lot of really good stuff mm -hmm. to say. And we were talking about her last week, 
And her name's Marty Temple, and she has worked in Child Protective C- Services, CPS, uh, social services mm-hmm. for what, 35, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And she's a Christian, and she's, so she's got a unique perspective on all of this. Uh, so we'll get to her in a second. Before that, <clears throat> I have one interesting article that I wanted to that I wanted to share. Uh huh. Go ahead. Uh, this is from uh, this is from Infowars, author of Gender Queer. You highly contested, highly contested all over the nation. Okay. the The author of in of Gender Queer uh, says, "quote I don't recommend this book for kids." Hello. And yet there are schools and school boards mm-hmm. and all kinds of people advocating for this book to stay in the school libraries. Yeah. The author of the book titled Gender Queer, one of the controversial LGBTQ plus materials featuring explicit images that have cropped up again and again in schools has stated that the book is not meant to be available for young children. Maya Kobabi, who identifies as non-binary, told the Washington Compost that her book is aimed at, quote, older teens, not kindergarten age kids. Now, I'm still not going to cut her any slack. It should not be aimed at children at all. Right. What you're writing is filth. However, interesting that to the Washington Compost, she said this, she or he, whatever, Quote, it keeps being called a children's book, but I think that's coming from a misreading of the comic book form. Gender queer is a comic and in full color, but that doesn't mean it's for children. Then why did you make it yeah. in a children's format? Yeah. Is my question. Yeah. <laughs> Cry me a freaking river. Quote, I originally wrote it for my parents. Wow. I don't think. That's pretty disgusting because I've seen <clears throat> the pages of that book. Um, yeah. Uh, I wrote it for my parents and then for older teens who were already asking these questions about themselves. I don't recommend this book for kids. Y'all, that ain't even. <laughs> to say cop out is, is, you know, because she's probably getting so much heat from it. Mm hmm. And how do you, where do you draw? Because obviously, you know that you're wrong. Right. You you just, you blatantly know that you're wrong across the board. And to say that it's for your parents, well, you're even is, equally disgusting. This is interesting. So the comments came after GOP Senator John Kennedy read aloud graphic excerpts during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. I watched that. Oh, I watched it. I, it's very explicit. I'm not going to play it. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, you can watch it, not with the kids around. And I, and it quotes what he read. Mm-hmm. Um, he reads, he reads a passage out of the book then says, quote, the words you spoke are, no, this is from secretary of Illinois, secretary of state, Alexander Giannolius. Okay. Was, was in this hearing with Senator Kennedy. And he says, the words you spoke are disturbing, especially coming out of your mouth. It's very disturbing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The book is one of several that have prompted outrage and protests among parents as it features graphic illustrations of sex between two men, use of sex toys, oral sex, masturbation, other things. Passages from the book have been read out by parents during school board meetings, in some cases, leading them to be shut down and asked to leave. Uh-huh. 
So here comes the author. Oh, well, I didn't, I didn't write that for children. I don't, I, right. Right. I, plausible deniability. Yeah, it's in schools all across the nation. Right. So again, Crimea River, Maya, whatever. Um, you shouldn't have written it in the first place. So with that, very interesting with that. Um, let's go to break and then come back because we've got quite a bit with Marty. So BRB. It's very powerful, very powerful. And, and it's well done. It uh, covers a broad range of problems that we have today in the world. I think that it's something that everybody needs to see. I was shocked by CPS being involved. And I was shocked by the secrecy, uh, uh, you know, keeping the secrets from the parents of what the, the children are being told and what they're being taught and not being made aware of it and secretly indoctrinating these kids uh, is absolutely shocking. It's absolutely horrible, and it needs to stop. I was shocked. A lot of different things are pulling together. I don't think the the expanse of how bad it is, people don't know about. All of the different elements of what's happening in the world today, somehow you pulled it to within two hours and 15 minutes. What stood out against uh, to me is um, I've, I've been watching uh, Klaus, the World uh, Economic Forum, uh, the Great Reset. I see that thing coming like crazy, but I didn't realize the association with dysphoria. And it's important to see that this thing has been in, inculcated into the school system and that it is now in place. It's not coming, it's in place. You think, oh, that can't be going on. And, and the more I watched it, I thought, this is exactly what's going on. Okay, so let's introduce you to one of our unsung cast member heroes. This is Marty Temple. Here we go. Uh, well, my name is Marita Temple. <clears throat> I go by Marty because some three-year-olds that I worked with couldn't say Miss Marita. And so I let them pick, and Marty stuck. And so that's what I've always been called. <clears throat> and so you'll know people who won't have any clue who Marita is. Um, and um, I, um, I started out, I wanted to be an attorney. That's what I was going to do in life. I had skipped three grades in school, and so I was too young to go to law school at the like the normal progression. And so at some point there, somebody said, well, you don't really want to be a lawyer anyway. Uh, you want to be a social worker, like some guiding person in my life. And I was like, okay, so I'll go find out what that means. So that's how I ended up in social work was somebody decided I wouldn't make a good lawyer, mostly because I couldn't defend people who I knew were guilty. Mm-hmm. And so that, and then <clears throat> my first passion was domestic violence. Um, I don't I don't really even know how I found out what domestic violence was other than my mother, my biological mother, had experienced it in my life. So it clicked right away, that's why. Um, but I fell in love with parents. I love kids, I've always loved kids, <clears throat> but I fell in love with parents and the fact that they would do the very best job they could do and it still wasn't enough, right? Like a mother who was already being victimized was also being criticized because her choices impacted her children. So that's what got me from working with domestic violence survivors into working with the children of domestic violence survivors. Um, I took a little gap um, in there because while I was working domestic violence, I was with a client and she was murdered by her husband. And I just, I couldn't handle any more like work in that field. And so I took a break and went and taught at a university for a while, 11 years. my husband got transferred 
And it was time for me to make a life choice. Like, what do I want to be now, right? And someone said to me, I was working with mentally retarded adults at the time. They're my other passion. Like, I don't know. I have a sister-in-law who's mentally retarded. It's just, I love that population. And I was like, hmm, I don't know what I want to do. So someone introduced me to the idea of SCAN. And we lived on the north side of town, and I didn't even know where it was. Like, they told me the address, and I'm like, I don't even know where that is. And so they said, well, it's on the other side of the river. I was like, wait, aren't there three rivers in this town? So um, I went. It was a sort of, I wanted not to be in charge anymore. That was one of the things, because I'd always been in charge in my jobs. And so I said, I just want to go out in the field and work with people. And so I went for this interview, and, of course, I I got there, and they're like, oh, we cannot let you go out in the field and do work. You're a management person. We need you to do management. I was like, only if you'll let me go out in the field with clients. I said, I don't want to sit behind a desk and write rules and all that. So that's how I ended up at SCAN. Um, I went there to be in charge of the Healthy Families Program, which is an early childhood development program, starts prenatally. It was total prevention. It was very small at the time. <clears throat> SCAN was the first program in the state. I I just fell in love with the idea that we were going to go out and do something to keep people from hurting their kids. And so grew the program, worked with the national organization, um, grew the program. We had 75 clients when I came there in 1995. Um, two years later, we had 900 clients. Uh, the state got on board with the idea of doing prevention work, and so that's how we got funded. Um, and <clears throat> lots of locals, people like the county council, city council, realized they were pouring tons of money into kids sitting at in foster care and kids sitting in local residential facilities. The federal government at the same time was thinking, oh, we got to stop these kids from lingering in foster care forever, so let's do more prevention. And so it was just an ideal mix. And because it's my, my skills are around program development and coming, being the visionary, but I'm a cube turner, so they put me in charge of that, like that was my job. Here's a vision, how do we put it on the ground? And so over the years, that's primarily what I've done with the understanding that I was always going to be able to be out in the field with clients. So doing quality assurance and training was a natural fit for that because I got to develop things and then I got to go out and see if they were implementing it appropriately. And then over the years, the word fidelity has become more popular in social services where you design and you research a model of services and then you make sure people are doing it the way it was designed so you can decide if it's helping. And so that's what I've done right, over all the years. So that included lots of travel, lots of training, uh, being involved with the legislature, um, both state and federal legislators. Um, I had worked for two years for Ted Kennedy prior to my married life. And so I had a good handle on how that system worked. And so just that part fit naturally. Um, social services are not allowed to be um, advocating they're, it's just not legal because of the way they're funded, but they can be educating. And so my role with the National Child Abuse Prevention Organization was to be that person a lot of the time who was at the legislature educating mm -hmm. folks in the Senate, um, that primarily in the Senate, who knew nothing about child abuse, right? And they definitely knew nothing about stopping it. Um, and so that's how I got into that role. And over the years, I've had a lot of different hats, but it's always been around what can we do to stop kids from getting hurt? And if they're getting hurt, how can we help the parent learn how to parent them so that they're not lingering in foster care forever? You said there was this huge spike 
when you of of clients when you came in a scan and um, do you know was there a reason for that? Because I found that interesting. I, I it just made me wonder: was there maybe money's tied to reporting, or were were there just naturally an influx of clients, or how? Well, so the the influx I was talking about was in prevention programs, right? So. That was in 1997 when the influx occurred, and it was because the federal government, well, first off, it had only been illegal to abuse your children for 10 years when I came to SCAN. So in 1995, the law had become actually formalized in 1986, and so there wasn't even any idea that prevention needed to be done because they were still operating in crisis mode of what are we doing to keep these kids who are being hurt safe? And now there's a law that says they can't be hurt and the state not do something about it. So over that period, a lot of kids had been removed from homes. <clears throat> Back then the focus was, we just gotta get them out of that environment. There wasn't a lot of focus on, okay, what are we doing to help the parents? Um, so that they can go back home because all of the research was clear. Even if a parent is not doing it right, if they learn to do it right, a child is always better with their biological parent other than in that 1% of cases where it's just truly uh, horrific kind of abuse. <clears throat> so all of that was kind of happening at the same time. The prevention outburst was because some smart senator <laughs> at the federal level said, if we're gonna give you money for all these kids you're removing, you've gotta come up with a way not to remove them. Right, So there had been previously 10 years of this influx of kids coming into foster care, languishing in foster care, years and years sitting because they couldn't get them back home because the parents that weren't getting the education they needed or the treatment for drugs and alcohol and mental health and all that. So they said, okay, somebody's got to keep them from getting removed because now we're going broke removing all these kids and it's not good for kids. <clears throat> so that's how Healthy Families uh, there's a program called Community Partners. There are some home visiting programs na nationally, like Nurse Family Partnership, um, that their whole focus then was, okay, what are we going to do to stop these kids from being removed? Well, in Hawaii, they had been doing research on that very thing because they had a very high removal rate when the federal law came in. And they said, well, we got to figure out what. Well, in their state, it was primarily with babies because of shaken baby, right, <clears throat> and drug-addicted babies. So they hired a researcher to come in and tell them, what is the best thing that we can do for kids? Well, let's do something to help the parents so that they don't lose their kid to begin with. And they came up with this very evidence-based research program that was three years of service prenatally, and it could be up to five back then. Highest risk families come in and we just pour home visiting services into them to help them stabilize, help them learn child development. And one of the number one risk factors for a child, a young child, is that parents don't understand development. So they either neglect promoting their development or they have higher expectations than a child can meet. And they end up hurting them because they didn't know, you know, like they didn't, I mean, we had parents who didn't know it wasn't okay to shake your baby to help them like go to sleep, like startle them and all kinds of weird things. But that prevention piece kicked in in 1997, like federally really kicked in. At the same time, the feds were telling the states, <clears throat> right now you're getting paid by the day for kids that are in care. And you're not gonna get that money if you're not doing prevention. So they kind of divvied up the money. Um, they kept 4E monies over here for what's called preservation. And that's if a kid 
is out of the home. It used to be called preservation just if kids were out of the home. And then prevention money. And they just pretty much leveled the field, right? They just said, okay, we're going to put half our money into each. And over the next years, discovered this money doesn't need to be as much if we're giving enough money to this. So um, they also, in that time, realized they were pouring a lot of money into young children, but they weren't pouring enough money then into kids that were that mid-age that are, again, high risk, because when they start resisting and rebelling and becoming their own person, they're at high risk for physical abuse. Mm -hmm. So they started pouring money into services for teens, a lot more investigation of kids under 14, like between the age of 11 and 14. Um, kind of most states have, it's not a formal law in any state that says, oh, well, a 14-year-old can make their own decisions, right? But over the years, I've seen, for example, sexual abuse. A 16-year-old used to, it was automatically going to be, uh, no matter who the person was that was having sex with this child, they were automatically going to have a rape charge against them of one kind or another because the child was 16 or under, right? Because they couldn't give consent. It was never, people think it at some point it was 18. I've, I've been at this 27 years, it was never 18. There was always an assumption that a 16-year-old girl could make the decision to be sexually active with another teenager. If it was an adult, they would press charges. But if it was another kid under 18, nothing done. Well, now that's kind of lowered to 14. Like now the age of consent, <clears throat> not in law. You won't find that written in law anywhere. But now it's kind of assumed that a 14-year-old girl can be making the decision, or boy can be making the decision to be sexually active with another adolescent. So, so that's how that all came about is they've just kind of increased, like now huge focus on that age group, right? It's huge focus. One, there's a, a larger pool of those kids. Um, and they've got a lot of prevention in place now for young kids. So there's not as much, like you'll see less discussion now of shaken baby, for example, because we're edu we've educated everyone about shaken baby. Um, child abandonment has been reduced because we did things like the box and, and all these other options that parents have. But that age group, like between, it was 10 to 14-ish, um, there really wasn't anything great in place for them. They'd get into care and just languish because, one, they're too little still to send back home to an abusive parent. And that group of parents are typically the least, they're the most resistant to intervention because they got the kid to 10. That's their, lots of times, right? They'll say, well, they got, we got them to this age. What's the problem? Mm. <laughs> what was the most surprising part of the interview with Marty. I, th I tell you what shocked me was when she said that it was only, it wasn't illegal to abuse children until 1986. <laughs> yeah. And, and I actually went back and I'm going to leave a link to the history of child protective services because I, I found it fascinating uh, when I was going back through and doing a little more research um, as we were, you know, preparing for this film and I'll leave a link to it because I mean it's it's in the it's it's in the documentation of of the U.S. government. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it it is interesting and fascinating how things have changed over the years. Mm -hmm. A lot of good has been done. Yeah, but mm, we're at a point to where things are being abused heavily. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's you, you could say the same thing about a lot of law enforcement agencies that we're seeing now that are being corrupted. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. um, listen, I know, I know people in the FBI, they're good men, 
They're there for the right reasons. And they are more frustrated, more irate at what's been done and what is being done to the reputation of the FBI by corrupt people at the top. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with the courts. We have courts that are turning justice upside down, right? We have to have a working functioning system of systems and child protective services is a very necessary agency. And and you'll hear people, I hear people on, on our side of things who are just as guilty as of overreacting to things. And they'll say things like, well, we just need to abolish CPS. We don't need it. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, Uh, as she said, you know, there's 1%. Yeah. There are one person in this. The very sad thing is, is we always see that one percent in the news. Right. We always see the those one percent are driving legislation, mm-hmm. school policies, you know, which I understand. But you can't accuse. And that's the problem with what's happening today is you're accusing all parents yeah. of what the one percent are doing. Yeah. I can tell you from the it's time. It's like social emotional learning. Well, Same yeah. thing we've and, talked about. And I can, I can tell you from the time that I have spent doing search and rescue, missing persons, particularly when it is a child, it is always, well, not always, but 98% of the time, it's a child who's gone missing because of abuse. I can give you, a, uh, you know, one specific example. One of the cases that uh, that inspired uh, us to set up a a new team because we were part of a federal team that was largely ineffective. We had all the resources and we did nothing. And there was a little girl here in Fort Wayne named Aliana Lemon who went missing. Remember, it was on Christmas Eve. I. I remember very well. And um, I spent that whole day trying to get us and all of our all of our DOD funded resources on the search and went home uh, unsuccessful. And then they found her murdered. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and that was a case where CP, I don't know if CPS had been involved, but she was murdered by a caretaker and the, the neighbor who was, who was watching her was the one that killed her. Mm. So he was also sexually abusing her. So that's a, that is a case right there. When I hear people say, Oh, get rid of CPS. Really? Then who's going to take care of situations like that? Mm -hmm. That's a situation where it may have been avoided. I don't know, but, uh, I've seen plenty of cases like that. So all that to say, not against CPS, but what you're seeing happening now is that it's being weaponized mm-hmm. to um, by people who are nothing but ideological tyrants. Uh, which is part of the storyline in Dysphoria. Yeah. Is, is we show you what's happening across the nation right. with this push with Child Protective Services. Right. Okay, so next part with Marty here. We talked a little bit about this last week, the difference between dysphoria and dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. 
So she's going to talk about that here in a second. Let's listen to this. The issue around transgender has been such a, well, you know, first off, I really just think it's the devil run rampant, but it has, it has come on so quickly, right? Like I, there's nothing else in my experience over the years with children and child welfare where we have gone from zero to a hundred in just a couple of years, you know, and there is no other topic where we are so focused on protecting this child around this issue that is not concrete, right? So we have a concrete protection in place for children who are being physically abused. It's concrete, right? They're being bruised, head injuries, blah, blah, blah. We have concrete things in place for children with disabilities. Um, and that was a big focus for a long time. And those are very high-risk kids, right? Now, all of a sudden, we're not talking about that. Like, when's the last time you heard a discussion about what we're doing to protect a kid who is learning disabled are very, very high risk because they're so frustrating, right? Now we've jumped onto a sexualized topic, and it's all we talk about, right? Like, everything, undergirding everything that's done in child welfare. But I think part of what people don't know is if you pull up the risk assessment tools that are used, they're all federally guided, right? They might not all look exactly alike. States have the right to make some changes. There's not a section on the assessment for whether this child is identifying as another gender. It is totally, it falls under the area of mental health and neglect. And that, that in and of itself is a misnomer because being transgender is not a mental illness, right? So, the mere fact that we categorize it in that section on an assessment is not appropriate, but that's where it ends up because what happens is a child has symptoms of depression, anger, hostility, running away, uh, just uh, inappropriate sexual activity, and or suicide attempts, ideation or attempts. Those things do all fall in that category. So as a worker who's out there doing this initial assessment that has to be done on every report, right? They're asking, they get that information, right? From the child, they always have to interview the child. And they're getting it from the child and or the reporting source. And then they have to explore where that came from. You said, you said a little bit ago that, that the gender dysphoria was not a mental. I, I, yes, it is not a mental illness. What, what is you it? Body dysmorphia. Yeah, so body dysmorphia is classified as a mental illness. It is evaluated like a mental illness. Um, it is generally generated out of some other kinds of mental illnesses. But gender dysphoria is not, is not identified as a mental illness. Now, a person with it may have a mental illness, and if you go to look at their records, they're going to be categorized with depression, anxiety. Uh, they're, they may even have personality disorder, like bipolar disorder, one of those. But in and of itself, it's not a mental illness. So in the DSM-5, when it came out with, and I think that was the terminology, I should have, I should have brought that with me. Um, the terminology of it Call it body dysmorphia? Is that yeah, what's the difference between yeah, dysmorphia you, and yeah. dysmorphia? Yeah, so body dysmorphia can happen with, so for example, you'll, you'll know people with eating disorders. That's body dysmorphia, right? They look in the mirror and they hate their body. They look at themselves and they hate their body, which is a part 
sometimes for people with dysphoria, right? Is they don't like the sexually or the gender identifying parts of their body. But that in and of itself is not dysmorphia, right? It has to also be attached with other behaviors. Suicide attempt is a really biggie. That's like the one that's always going to severe depression. But just being unhappy, and I do believe that we're going it's going to change, right? It's going to become a mental illness. The one of the reasons that like like this DSM it is, right? Is just so you know. Like, I've been through a lot of versions of the DSM, yeah. and there have been a lot of things. They weren't a mental illness in the DSM, but we were treating it as a mental illness. I could tell you, like, uh, uh, bipolar disorder mm-hmm. is one of those. Um, the other is sometimes people forget that mental illnesses are category. They have, you have personality disorders, and then you have mental health disorders, which are those that are more life-threatening usually. Um, but in and of itself, not liking your gender is, is not a mental illness. It has to be attached to something else. So dysmorphia is usually what they end up with diagnosis of for insurance and other things. And it will automatically get attached to another mental health issue that can get them paid, get whoever's caring for them paid, like their mental health provider, for example, or all these people. Like you have to do a lot of evaluating to decide what the issue is. Because sometimes the dislike of their body is not really about the gender issue. It's just a hot button at the moment, right? Oh, my word. So that's why... (sighs) That's why all these stupid YouTube videos for these kids is to tell them automatically that you're suicidal. Oh! Because the body dysmorphia doesn't cut it. Just because you're unhappy with yourself, you have to attach the mental illness with it in order to receive the services right. to get paid. Right. Or can you say that back? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in that way. Yeah. So it's kind of the convert. So if I have dysmorphia, I probably like some traumatic event has occurred in my life to lead me to not like my body. So that could have been, like sexual abuse, for example, can lead to to dysmorphia because whatever part of the body was abused then becomes the flashpoint, the memory, the whatever. So it's not unusual, for example, to see boys who have been sexually abused not like that part of their body. Doesn't mean they want to get rid of it, though, right? That's not dysphoria. That's dysmorphia. They don't like that part of their body. Probably the most common one people understand is is eating disorders. Those are usually people with this dysmorph. They don't like their body. And they see something different in the mirror than you see, right? That's the problem. You see this vibrant, healthy person and they see someone fat, right? That's dysmorphia. When they see something different, not that they just dislike something, but they see something different and the dislike of it interferes with their ability to function right? Those are the things. So those are the kids that you see in psych units and other places getting treated. Uh, Sometimes it'll be inappropriate sexual behavior because they're trying to prove, they're trying to find a way to prove they're worthy, right? And they do that inappropriately. And, and, or they're, they have this misconception of chubby girls, for example, this is one that's used uh, that you see a lot. Chubby girls become sexually active because they're proving they're attractive, and the way they prove they're attractive is by being sexually active. Well, that's sort of related to dysmorphia, usually. And 
that has been long, long time now has been a mental illness, right? Way before the LGBT, like I, many, many, many years now, that's been an issue. We didn't even have LGBTQ, right? When that was, became a diagnosis. And then, then we had to come up with a label for this new thing. And that's like, dysphoria is not just around LGBTQ, right? It's just the word that's attached to it now. Um, like I, it really wasn't even, I don't even remember. I don't even think five years ago, like I heard the two connected, right? Um, because we talk about dysphoria a lot of times with people who have mental illnesses where there are delusions and addictions and those kind of things. But all of a sudden now, and I truly believe, I, I mean, there's a lot of research going on, so we'll see, I could be totally wrong, that we're gonna find out that there was no mental illness issue at all it was a fitting in. Like, I know this to be a fact. I have an eight-year-old niece who is very clear about her personal identity, right? But three of her friends are going through this. They think they might want to be a boy, blah, blah, blah. And she does not want to be a boy. But she feels pressured, right, to say she wants to be a boy to fit in with this group. Like, I hadn't personally witnessed it until then, but I have a friend who's a therapist who sees kids She's like, oh, yeah, all of a sudden, like, there's bullying going on around it. And I was like, wait, like, you would expect the bullying to be the opposite, right? Like, that this kid who's struggling with the decision is getting bullied for the decision. Well, now it's become more popular to have an issue. <laughs> and so you've got to have an issue. A lot to unpack. Yeah, there. yeah. And I, and, and it was fascinating sitting down with her and because... You know, because we 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 research and do so many things, and that's mm -hmm. why as soon as she started talking about all of all of these issues, <laughs> well, especially that it that it's not considered that dysphoria is not considered a mental issue, mm -hmm. and so if you're listening and you're confused by that, so am I. <laughs> Even after researching it, it still doesn't make any sense to me because I, and I, I think the way to understand it is there's, I guess, kind of the every, the everyday person's version of this is a mental thing. And you then know, there's the people who live in reality. Right. And then there's the, and these, there's the, the academic, the, the academic version of whether or not by the book it's yeah, the considered quote yeah, it's defined as a mental illness. Versus the rest of us going, looking at somebody who thinks that they're the opposite gender and you go, you have a mental issue. Mm -hmm. So I think the every, the everyday person's definition of it being a mental issue, I still say it is, even though by the textbook, it's not, <laughs> it is still. There's something wrong with that individual. It's a heart issue. Let's it, just, it's a spiritual right. <clears throat> issue. It's a heart issue at the core. It's all a heart issue. Yeah. So um, that I, I still struggle with just because I did think it was interesting that she thinks that at some point it would that it will be. Defined illness. as a mental illness. And I, I've had to, I sat and I pondered that a lot. And I think, no, okay, let me think about this. I guess if you follow the money, mm -hmm. then if you define it 
as a mental illness. Well, now you can pour a bunch of money into this. And now and now all the providers can get paid. Right. Look at look at what we were just talking about because you see now and it's it's what we see. YouTube is a dumpster fire mm. of leading kids into saying things in order to get services, mm. get them removed from their homes if their parents don't agree. I mean, it's it's only half the dumpster fire that TikTok uh, is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, either way, like oh, it's just it's horrible. Yeah. So I understand if that confuses people when they hear that because it it, it did it seems opposite of what it should be. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But it is an interesting perspective. And Marty's she's a believer. She's what she's doing though is she's telling you this listen, in the child protective services, social services business basically arena arena it is not defined as that it has to be attached to another behavior such as suicidal ideations Mm -hmm. which of course is one of the first things as we heard from aaron lee Mm -hmm. that's the first thing they told them you know if you're if you feel uncomfortable with your body that means that you're you're more likely you're you're gender dysphoric Mm -hmm. you're transgender and by the way, you're more now you're going to feel like killing yourself. So what now Boy, connecting the up. dots, so connecting the dots. Why do they tell them that? Mm-hmm. Because it leads to money. Mm-hmm. Yep. It always goes to money. Yep. Somebody needs to be paid. Why are we indoctrinating kids? Because this is a way to cash in on, uh, the, on the insurance long industry. Patience. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's, I guess that's all we have for today. Uh, you should come to the uh, premiere on Friday, the 29th in Noblesville, Indiana. We're you can still get tickets at dysphoriamovie.com. Yep. Right? Well, that's all the time we have for today, friends. Thanks for listening through to the end and be sure to click that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and share this with your family and friends. Until next time, be filled with the spirit. March on, Saints. You're everyone's problem. I am dangerous.